Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All right, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Today I have someone very, very exciting, a founder also from a place that is close to my heart, which is Spain. And what he has been able to do is, is really remarkable, keeping in mind that, that he's out of the U.S., right? So, uh, so Ander, welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Thank you, Alejandro. A pleasure to be here. So tell me a little bit about uh, yourself and your story. How did you get started with the entrepreneurial book? Because I see that you were in banking before everything started. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, when I quit university, I first joined banking, investment banking. I did three years of the money in Morgan Stanley. Uh, and actually, what happened is uh, during my, my third year, the beginning of my third year, uh, I actually went to my hometown uh, in Bilbao in the north of Spain. And when I was coming back, I saw my dad, saw another guy, and the other guy say, hey, Pedro Luis, hi, Pedro Luis. Both of these guys were named Pedro Luis. And he started asking, so what are you doing here? Oh, I'm here to bring my son. Oh, okay. So I was my dad, and he, this guy was talking. And say, okay, so uh, your son, where is he going? To London? Oh, mine too. And uh, where does he work? In a bank? Oh, mine too. And in what bank? Oh, in Morgan and Stanley. Oh, mine too. Okay. So that's what I met. So it was John, under, under John, and that's what I made my co-founder. Uh, that was a very funny story. And once once we met there, we realized that both of us wanted to get out of the in, investment bank world. So actually, we start getting together quite often. We start looking at ideas of what we can do uh, outside of that. And uh, we're investment bankers, right? We didn't have a single clue about internet, about e-commerce, about marketing, online marketing, nothing. So what we did is uh, do as an investment banker will do, that is analyze. That's what we need, knew how to do. So what we did is uh, look at the U.S., the models that have been successful in the U.S., and we put two requisites on it. A model that has been successful in the U.S. that uh, could not be anything similar launched in Latin America, and if there was something similar in Europe, it needed to be used starting. So with those two requisites, we, uh, we went ahead and uh, uh, looked at potential businesses. We came with a short list of three business models that we like. And at the end, by studying them, we came down to use one. Uh, that is, was uh, the German of Ticket Biz. Uh, basically, what we did is, it's inspiring the model of Staff Hub in the U.S. So basically, a website where you can buy and sell tickets. What the time, that was, I'm talking about 2009. At the time we were doing this, there was nothing similar in, uh, there was a couple of companies in Europe that were starting in the U.K., but nothing very big. And there was nothing like that in Latin America. So that's where we decided to go and do that business. Got it. So what was the uh, business model with TicketBiz? So it's, uh, as I say, it's, um, similar to StubHub. Uh, so basically, you are in a marketplace where you can uh, buy and sell tickets. Uh, so we allow, uh, if you have an extra ticket for an event and you want to sell it, you can sell it there. And if you haven't been lucky enough to get your ticket in, on, on the own sale, uh, you can find tickets there to buy the ticket. Or uh, alternatively, if the event hasn't been sold out, you can find cheaper tickets in uh, in this platform that you will find in the original seller because people are selling them for cheaper. So it's uh, basically a marketplace where the prices are just in terms of demand, offer and demand, uh, and uh, that's what we did. In, and it was it was funny because it's uh, something you think about it. There is everywhere in the world there is uh, shows, there is sports in Europe. There is a, especially for example in Europe is football. Football is very big. All the stadiums are sold out, but there wasn't any solution to actually 
allow people to do that. So people actually were buying and selling tickets before we arrived. They were buying and selling tickets in the street without any security. Uh, and uh, that's that's why the business model was well taken, and it was uh, we were quite successfully fast. Got it. So what was the um, the capital structure of the company? Because I see that you guys uh, went from seed all the way to Series E, and you raised uh, a little bit over twenty million. So so what was that uh, that capital structure? Uh, so we it was it is interesting because uh, at the time we were doing this in Spain. Uh, the VC industry wasn't that developed and there wasn't that many entrepreneurs and there wasn't that many business angels. It was a strange period. It was just after the financial crisis. So the capital was very scarce. But lucky enough, we were able to get uh, capital from private investors. We didn't get a single VC on uh, at the beginning. And then we got a used one VC involved just uh, before the end. Uh, and he used to put 4 million euros. So very small. Uh, very small participation on from from VCs in all this structure, um, and that's that's uh, that's uh, so that what happened with that is what we did is that we didn't have uh, any big VCs in the structure. What we did is pretty much do a capital increase every year, more or less, and we used manage the capital increase to match the financial needs for the year. Uh, we were very scrappy. We were doing things uh, very uh, the cheapest way possible. Uh, and that allowed us to, with this 20 million, to build something that at the moment we sold the company, we still owe over 50% of the shares between me and my partner. Nice. Uh, and uh, apart from that, the company was already uh, doing 100 millions in revenues. It was present in four, over 40 countries uh, with uh, 400 employees. So we managed to do something quite big with very little amount of money. Uh, it was it was due to the constraint that, we, that Spain had at that time. I think since things have changed a little bit, it was changing massively in Europe. Especially yeah. in Spain since then. Now there is a lot more money. There is a lot more VCs. Now there is second time entrepreneurs like myself that are investing back in the ecosystem. Uh, but at the time it was, it was actually, we did this because it was the only way to do it. Got it. And, and, you know, it's, it's just fantastic that the ecosystem is developing now, you know, in, in Spain. And I agree with you. It has come a long way in the past day, for example, 10 years with all these founders exiting and, 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 and being able to like put back the money into all these companies that are now starting to flourish. So, I guess, I guess, in hindsight, how do you feel about how the business was capitalized? Well, uh, I think from from our perspective, I think it was it was actually was the consequence of the need that there was in the market. But I think there was a smart move, right? Because we as we never raised a big round, the maximum raise was four million euros, and we were doing it constantly. We have a higher risk because we want to, you never have enough money to actually overspend but you have used enough money so you don't dilute yourself too much so it was it on the balance i think at the end if you look at the, the performance that, that we finished with 50 percent of the capital it was it was the, the great decision although it is true that it got it it, it make us some distraction because we every year basically were in a capital uh, capital raise mode so every year we had to go out go out again and talk to our current shareholders see how much they want to boot and go and find new shareholders that that's uh, distract you right from the from right. growing the business so it works for us but uh, you never know what will happen if we have had the help of a professional VC earlier we have diluted a bit more maybe we'll have built something bigger uh, I don't know I don't I will never know that but I'm happy with the result let's say like that <laughs> I don't know that's fantastic so I, I guess the um you know, being in a place like Spain, right? In, and you were saying that, you know, when you guys were starting out, you know, it was, it was still not mature enough, the, um, the ecosystem. What was the process as you were looking at the evaluation of the company? I mean, how, how did that come about? 
Well, uh, well, with this, look at multiples uh, that we were seeing in other markets, in other places, and well, more, mostly in Europe, right? Because the, the valuation that you got in the U.S. are like two, three times what you get in Europe. So, in in a in a seed round in Europe right now, in Spain right now, you can value around two millions in the U.S. They're talking about eight, ten million, right? So it's uh, it's even more. It's right now it's like four or five times more. Um, so that, that that was the situation. It's not the same in every round, but that was the situation. So we look at, we couldn't compare to U.S. companies, so we look at other comparables in Europe. And uh, what we did is, at the end, we, we valued the company in each round more or less at one time GMV, so one time the sales that we're having. Uh, that was the valuation pre-money uh, when we were valuing the company. That, that was it. It was as, as small and as dumb as that. Uh, yeah. We were growing 100%. and. Uh, uh, people uh, feel feel that it was a fair valuation uh, for for what it was. So that, that's how we how, that's how we make the valuation. Got it, got it. And and I guess uh, uh, now that we're talking about you know the, the the Spanish market now developing, for example, like and, and and also comparing with your interactions with with other VCs that were a little bit more on the international side, like how how did that lack of sophistication, perhaps with the non-US VCs, uh, you know, how did you experience that? Uh, what do you mean? So the lack of certification of VCs? Like, for example, like have you, yeah. like at the beginning, for example, like when you were uh, engaging with Spanish VCs, did you see like any perhaps off-market clauses on subscription agreements or term sheets? The problem is that the time we were doing ticket bids, there wasn't many VCs in Spain. You could count them with your hands and they were very small in the sense that they put checks for small companies. There was no follow-on capital. There wasn't a scale-up capital. Very little funds did that. Uh, and uh, at the same time, we were lucky enough that we didn't have to go even to talk too much to them because our number was so great that we were able to finance ourselves with private money. And uh, our vision with that was if I can finance myself with private money, these VCs are not bringing anything major to the table. I would even feel that way, uh, that we're not bringing anything extra to the table. That is going to be more painful because they're going to make me have a board of directors. I don't want a board of directors. The only thing I want is to execute and they, somebody put the money and leave me alone. So uh, as we didn't, we didn't feel there was a smart capital out there uh, that would help us in other ways. We went for capital that wouldn't even try to help us. You just put the money and it let us alone and let us execute. Uh, and that's why we decided to, to go to as much as possible for private money. The, there was a point where one VC approached us and it wasn't even us when we have one VC on the, on the on the cap table at the end, active venture partners, but it was that VC came to us. We didn't even go to them, and they came to us and said, "We want to to join you guys." And we're like, "Okay, that's great. We we're happy for you to join, but if you join, it's gonna be on certain conditions. There's not gonna be a board of directors. You're not gonna have pressure share. You're gonna have common share like everybody else. And this is the terms in terms of valuation. If you want to join, great. If not, and perhaps some of the private investors that will take the place." At the end of the day, they were so interested that they joined and they agree on the condition. It was uh, a little bit, uh, I think it's not very normal, uh, but uh, that's that's what happened. And that's why we, at the end of the day, we have a VC in place. Uh, but it was, the consequence of that was, um, sorry, the reason behind that was that we didn't, we didn't feel there was a, this smart money. If we have felt at some point that there was a VC that could have been more helpful than just bringing the money and um, and helping us all the way in the process, uh, we'll have been open to to actually get it on board. Got it, got it. Makes sense. And you know, the fact that 
that they came in with, with common stock, I mean, that's amazing because normally all these VCs have all types of investment thesis around having the, the preferred shares and being first first money in, first money out, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, well, look, it was, for us, we were in a strong position in terms that we didn't need the money. We have a bunch of people who wanted to invest, and it was like, look, fine if you want to invest, but these are the conditions. And at the end of the day, they came down and they agreed with the conditions. So uh, we, we agree on getting them on board. That's amazing. So I guess I guess now that uh, that you're taking a look back, I mean, were you were you always planning to sell the business, and and if so, what was the trigger? Well, uh, if somebody tells you that they create a business and don't even think a single second about selling the business at some point, I think they're lying. I mean, everybody, you don't you don't run the business to sell it, so you don't do or take all decisions actually thinking about the sell. That's a mistake. But when you create the business, you also think about the potential exit you could have in the future. You never know when they're going to arrive. Maybe they never arrive, but you always think about those. Uh, so in our case, we did the same. At the end of the day, we, what we did is copy a model that was very successful in the U.S., uh, copied from StubHub. Uh, StubHub has been acquired, was acquired by eBay a little bit later than what we start looking at it uh, by a, for over $360 million. So we look at it and we were like, okay, this this makes... This makes sense. This model makes sense. And hey, uh, potential buyers who can be, well, this stuff, if they want to go international, they're going to move outside the U.S. at some point. They can be a potential acquirer. And of course, there was other others in our list. But that was the main one that we have put in red. Like, okay, this is the guys who, who actually, the, that makes more sense than the buyers. And uh, lucky enough for us, it happens. It happens six years later, seven years later, but it happens. Uh, but we didn't, we were not running, one thing is important, we were not running the company for, for use for them to acquire. We were running it where it makes sense. So we were actually expanding into markets where there was nobody, where we have the first market advantage, where we were the first mover, where we were the first one in the market and getting all the users very cheap because we we're not competing with anybody, setting all the operation in a bunch of different markets and spending very little in marketing, always investing a positive ROI. So we did, our, we did do what we should do without thinking about them. And then, of course, when they start looking at how we expand international, they did have two options. It's rather, okay, I'm going to go and buy these guys who have done a very, very extremely efficient job and they're present in 40 markets, or I'm going to go and fight market by per market. So at the end of the day, they came to us and uh, and make us an offer. And uh, yeah, it took us a year and a half after the first offer because we rejected the first offer, and it took us a, a while to create an agreement. But at the end of yeah. the day, they we agree and we sold them to them. And, and I guess this is public. So what was the amount of the transaction? Yeah, it's, uh, the, it's, uh, so it was, it was no public at the time, but now that I'm out of the company, the, uh, it's something that we can say. Now it's uh, 165, it was 165 million euros. Got it. So that was the amount of transaction. Yeah. So at the time it's around 200 million dollars, something like that. Fantastic. And, and the structure of that was cash or, or equity? 100% cash, 100% cash with a scroll that retained part of the money. Uh, part of the deal is what they were acquiring wasn't just the business. What they were acquiring was uh, the team that has been able to do that very efficient, right? I mean, we're pretty much recipient when they acquire us. So uh, for them, it was important that the team remain. So uh, me and my partner, John, had to remain the company for, for, the, next, uh, for the next three years. That was part of the agreement. Uh, but uh, actually two months, so that was, that the company was sold in 2016, but actually two months ago, uh, on the second anniversary of the sale, we reached an agreement and we just exited the company. So I've been two, uh, two, two months outside of the company already. Got it, got it, got it. And, 
and we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. So I guess I guess talking about now the the actual transaction, did you did you get any competitive offers? Uh, you know, after receiving the the interest from StopHub. Well, we we got the interest from StopHub, and uh, we didn't uh, at the beginning. It was such a natural player that we didn't uh, we didn't even open a process or anything. The other the other thing that happened there is that both me and my partner were investment bankers. Um, so we we thought that we could run the process, so we never selected an, uh, 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 an investment bank. So that's that was the main offer. And then yeah, we were talking to other guys, but we never got an offer, a serious offer from any other any other. Uh, although we were talking to some other guys, we never got a serious offer from the others. Uh, Staffa was the most serious one; he was the one who was pushing for it. And uh, once we got the the last offer that they make, uh, one of the clauses was to ask for exclusivity. So uh, at that point, we couldn't go and open a process. Uh, there was one of the requirements. And the, the price was, to be honest, the price was, we thought it was fair. And as the price was fair, we were like, okay, it's, it's fine. I'm not going to, even if I open a competitive process now and, and I try to negotiate this, uh, I probably will not get that too much at a higher price and it's going to delay everything without the risk of losing, losing the transaction. So we decided not to open up a competitive process and to go ahead and get exclusivity with them and, and uh, close the deal. Got it. So I guess I guess before you actually got that uh, that initial interest, for how long were you guys, let's say, building the relationship with uh, StopHub? Long time. So uh, it was almost two years before. So it, it, we they they contacted us in 2014. First they contacted us. Oh, we learned about you guys. Think you're doing a great job. Why you don't come us? Let us invite you to Wimbledon. So. I've never been to Wimbledon, so okay, I'm gonna go to Wimbledon. <laughs> so I went great. to London and I was, well, I went to a match, they bring me to a box, so it was amazing in a box in Wimbledon. I cannot even think how much those tickets were. Uh, right. So we were used there and uh, knowing the team. And it was very funny because I came back and it was just me who went, my partner didn't go. So my partner called me, said, how did he win? I was like, great. But he told me, but did they say anything? Did they offer anything? No, yeah. it was basically talking about whatever. Basically, the, what they were doing is knowing us better. Uh, we, they did that like four or five times, inviting us to different events, coming to Madrid, had dinners, to know the team a little bit better before actually getting serious and saying, guys, we want to buy you. So uh, from the yeah. first time they met us to actually the first time they told us we want to buy you was almost a year. Uh, and then from that point to our first offer, uh, it was another six months process. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that first offer, is, we rejected it. It was a ridiculous price. And then three months later, uh, that what happened after that is we rejected the first offer. That I'm, I'm in the middle of 2015. And as we rejected the first offer, what we thought is staff I was trying to do is uh, what they want is to get all the information about us, about where are the countries that were doing better, what are the, our GMV in per country, what our marketing strategy, etc. So what they want is to get all the information, and they really the price they offer was so low that we thought that they really didn't wanted to buy us. What they wanted to do is to get the information and use it to expand themselves. Yeah. Uh, so we ha- we were afraid that that was going on. No? So what we did is uh, start looking for a big round, uh, and actually I got a couple of term sheets for uh, a fifty million dollars uh, round uh, yeah. from USVCs at that point. And uh, I was actually, I'm, I mean, now in uh, 2015, and I was in the middle, I was in San Francisco negotiating with a couple of the local VCs there. Uh, and I received an email from the staff saying, we know you are in town, but you don't come to our office. I was like, wow. okay, I don't lose anything. So, okay, I will go to your office. 
that was three months later after we rejected the, their offer. And um, we went there and it's... And how did they know you were in happened. town? Yeah, Amber, how did I, I don't know. know. Maybe on LinkedIn, Facebook. <laughs> right. I don't know. I, don't know. I, I never asked. They were stalking you. And, uh, exactly. I don't know what it was, but they knew I was in town. So maybe I visit tell them. I, I don't. I don't really know. I was talking to a bunch of people like back then in, in San Francisco. So uh, what happened is they invite me for lunch, and uh, what happened is what usually happened in the big companies. So uh, first was a team that was doing the transaction, and then a completely new team appeared, all new faces. Nobody from the first team that were talking to us uh, went to that lunch and they started telling us that, that they were sorry they didn't see the, enough the value of the company and uh, that they wanted to um, to try again, let, that we shouldn't let, let that help us to reach an agreement. And uh, what I did, I'm from the north of Spain and uh, from the north of Spain, from Bilbao, and uh, people are very proud. So they say that we are very proud. I don't know what I it was proudness or stupidity, but what I told them in that table is like, look, you offered this three months ago. You either put uh, a price between three and four times what you offer, or there is no deal. That's what I did. I told them that, and basically finished lunch, and I walked away. Like then, I'm never gonna come back, right? So wow. I went back to Spain. I was talking to my co-founder. We we're preparing the round, and then uh, we a week later received a call from them, and we're ready to offer what you asked. I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> wow. So I guess there is interest and. Uh, there's an option here. So we negotiate a little bit more the price and we reach an agreement. And that's how we reach an agreement on the price. And then, then at that point is where the nightmare starts in the sense of due diligence. Yeah. He reached the price was high enough inside eBay that they did it to uh, do a full due diligence. And a full due diligence meant that we opened a data room. And in the data room, uh, in for a marble style, there were seven of us. We didn't hire any advisor. The only advisor we hired is the lawyers. That's it. Okay. The rest, we were running everything uh, internally between me and my partner, the finance director, CTO, uh, pretty much it. But on the other side, eBay hired a bunch of advisors. So many that there was 230 people on the other side, from the eBay wow. side. So it was 230 against seven. It was, <laughs> let me tell you, investment banks seemed like a walk in the park in comparison. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was a, a very interesting period. Um, so, and that lasted for for almost nine months because well, it was further that the data room. Uh, that we have a we were as I say we have a world in forty countries. We have fourteen offices around the world, but we have twenty something different companies all over the world. So they had to look at all of that. And well, anyway, the process was was really long, over nine yeah. months process. And how how many employees did you have at this time? Uh, almost 400. Or 400. So, and how, how, yes. how, did, how did you manage uh, for nine months, seven of you guys, I mean, to, to keep it in the, on the low key so that, did you keep it in the low key first of all, or did the, everyone knew that you guys were going through this process? So, uh, you cannot keep it, uh, you cannot keep it low, right? Because you are, we are founders and we were really into the business, pushing, making everybody grow, making, a uh, new strategy all the time, launching countries, etc. And all of a sudden, we were not present anymore because we're fully deep into this process, right? So what we have to, we needed to tell. There was rumors, so we needed to tell something to the to our uh, to our team. So what we told them is that look, we are looking to close a big round and uh, a big round uh, around 40, 50 million. So like if we were going to the for the VC round, and uh, they are doing due diligence, it's going to take some time. Uh, so this is the current situation. And people at the beginning believe us for the first two, three months. 
But yeah. then you start thinking, oh, this is not a run. A run doesn't take this long. There's something else. And uh, that's that's what happened. There was there was a lot of rumors. There was rumor in the office. I remember very well. There was rumors in the office that it was Amazon who was buying us. That it was uh, Alibaba. There was a bunch of rumor in the in the in the, in the office. And in, even in Madrid, there was rumors because people started talking. Four hundred employees, a lot of employees. So there was yeah. a lot of rumors. Uh, and uh, well, uh, some uh, some people, some of the rumors were confirmed. Was we announced the the sale in June uh, 2016. Yeah. Got it. And, and, and during this process as well, how, I mean, if you did or not, uh, keep the, um, the existing investors in the loop? Well, that's a very good question. So what we did there is instead of uh, we needed 90% of the capital, so we, we needed to, to actually get 100 to 100%. We, 90, we have a rule inside the company that everybody, all the shareholders signed that with 90% of the capital, everybody has to sell. Uh, so... It was like, it was even a little less. It was over eighty percent of the capital, right? So what we did is between me and my partner, our families to control over sixty something percent, something something percent of the company. We got on the loop the VC and a, a couple of the big shareholders, and that was enough to guarantee that we have this over eighty percent. So those were the guys who were on the loop. The rest of the shareholders were not on the loop, okay. uh, and uh, basically because uh, it was unrequited also from the eBay part, right? eBay is a quoted company. Uh, we need to be extremely careful. We need to avoid leakage, uh, and uh, and that w- that was the reason why we did it. And it was, uh, I think it was the, it was the right decision. So we only put them on the loop the actually two days before we signed. We told them, guys, this is the transition. The transaction is going to be announced in a couple of days. Uh, it's very good for everybody. We explain it to everybody and uh, be ready because you're going to need to sign in the next 24 hours the documents. So got it. Uh, that's that's what happened. Well, I mean, I imagine that, for example, the earlier investors were thrilled because the the multiple now on the on their investment was uh, probably very exciting. Yeah, no, for some investors was a seventy x multiple. So the first round investor made an amazing multiple. Uh, so they were very happy. Yeah, of course, they were very happy. We they invested at two million valuation, and uh, there hasn't been many dilution over time because we were very capital efficient. So they were thrilled. It was for some of them. It was a very, 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 very good exit. Yeah. So nobody complained. Nobody complained about it. So we were lucky enough that no, no one of the single investors was saying that, oh, you guys shouldn't sell. I'm not going to sign documents. No, everybody was on board with it. That the study was the best for the company, uh, and that's and that's why they do it. Uh, and in terms of us thinking about why we sell, and I think it's uh, it's interesting because. If you think about it, you have a company that's doing 100 million in sales, that's growing over 100% every year. Uh, a lot of people ask me, why why you sell? So you have that, that moment, why why you choose to sell? And, and it's interesting because uh, for us, uh, it was a life-changing event. That's what it was, to be honest. Uh, we have everything on the company that we have been doing very hard for the last seven years. Uh, yeah, the company was growing very well. We all, all, were all almost break-even. Uh, but you never know what's going to happen, right? So for us, right. it was okay. We it's less. Is is our first company? Probably, if it would have been my second company, I, to be honest, I would not sell and go go for a much bigger outcome. But at right. that point, for us, it was like okay, it's it's going to change our life. And from then on, we can choose to do different things. We will have time to start another company if we want, or become investor, or do whatever we want. Uh, so that's why this why we say it's time to sell. And I'm and I'm glad that you that you mentioned that and and this this kind of like segues very nicely into into something that just that just came to mind you know asking you like 
You were talking about like you, your family members, uh, all owning 60%, and, and you also had like these investors. So I guess when it came to the actual price, right, that you were getting from StubHub, how, how aligned were you all in terms of valuation internally? So I, I think the price was good enough so everybody agreed because the run uh, has been at a low price. So it was maximizing the price in every run, but if the, the last round uh, ticket bid was uh, before we sell, ticket bid was valued at 50 million uh, euros free money. Uh, we got 4 million, so 54 total. So this was three times X the money that we got one year ago. One, yeah. uh, when the offer came. So, uh, everybody was happy. The valuation was fair. The company was going very, very well, but they understood that everybody was supportive with that. Everybody was, the message was pretty much consistent. You guys want to sell? We will support you. And I'm very grateful for the, for our shareholders to, to have think about it on those terms, especially to Jose, Marina, and Fabrice Vinda, uh, right. Labs. They, they were investors in the first round. And uh, these guys are amazing. They were, they were the most helpful investors that we had, and they were extremely supportive. I remember a conversation I had with Jose uh, before selling, and I, and I told him, well, what should we do? What In this situation, what, what do you think we should do? And uh, he told me, guys, we will, whatever you decide, we will support you. For you, if I would be in your shoes, me, Mike, me right now, with the money situation that I have and everything, I will not sell because your business is growing extremely well and you can go for a much higher outcome later. Uh, but I will totally understand if you guys decide to sell because you have everything there. This is a life-changing event. Um, you take the money, where, where were you? It makes total sense. And hey, after that, your life will change completely and then you can decide what to do. If you build another one, probably you will go for a much bigger exit. And um, that's true. And that's an advice I will never forget. And that's, that's at the end of the day, we come, we were talking about it and we decided to sell. That was, that was the reason. That was the advice that we took. That's okay. It makes total sense. Let's just do yeah. it. And, uh, and then potentially if we ever built another company, I will not settle for, uh, for, for that amount. I will, I will try to go much higher. Got it. And you know, it's amazing that you got that advice because typically the, um, the investors are going to push you for a sell to, to be able to give returns to their LPs, no? Yeah, no, I, I mean, these guys are amazing, as I say, have uh, So, yeah, the advice was very good. And also, also it helps that the, the returns were going to be there no matter what, right? P-Labs were invested in the first round and they have been investing in the other ones, so they got a very good return. Uh, they could maximize it and go for higher, yes, but uh, they prefer to be on the side of the entrepreneur. Uh, than doing that, and I'm very grateful for that. Got it. So now let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about the um, the present. So you were you were mentioning that a couple of months ago you gave your notice and you went on to be on the other side of the table and you started All Iron Ventures. So can you te- can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this uh, new initiative? So yes, uh, basically All Iron Ventures is a VC created by John and me and my partner. Um, what we did is. It came all naturally because when we sold the company, uh, we started receiving a bunch of projects. People who wanted us to invest in the projects, so we started doing investments. And then uh, at some point, we decided, okay, we need to professionalize this. So we decided to allocate 30 million of our money, uh, euros in our own money to just invest in startups. Then uh, a, an institution came, the European Investment Fund. Uh, came and asked us, we want, we like what you guys are doing. We want to back you up. So we want to, we're going to give you for every euro of invest. We're going to give you another one to invest in every company. So all the time we have 60 minutes to 
manage. So we decided to, I was still inside eBay. So we decided to hire a couple of person, professionalize the business a little bit, keep it investing. And then, uh, once we were already on the way out, we decided that, okay, we have 60 million. We're going to expand it with an additional 40 million from uh, other family, family office and other entrepreneurs that were asking us uh, to join us because we were liking the investment that we were doing. Uh, and we have opened another 40 million, uh, up and another 40 million fund. And now it's all together with 100 million VC. Uh, and we invest in a uh, very agnostic stage. So we invest from uh, C to B or C. We don't care. We put tickets from 100K to up to 8 million. So extremely, uh, we can put up to 8 million in a company. Uh, so very from one side to the other. Uh, and uh, for us, we are also uh, agnostic in terms of sector. We prefer, we like, we only invest in second companies that we understand. And if we, is that in technology that we don't really understand? We will only invest if there is a specialized VC that goes there. But we're very, very flexible on that sense. And what we bring to the table is expertise from an entrepreneurial side point of view. We're entrepreneurs. We, we, for one of the things we do is what we did on Ticket Risk. We didn't like, uh, the board, board meetings. We thought it was not a good use of anybody's time. So for example, we don't have board meetings in the companies we invested. No matter how much money we invest, we allow the entrepreneurs to run the company. And what we are here is, for help. If they need something, they have my number. They can call me. I'm happy to stand an entire day helping them with the internationalization expansion, with uh, uh, the business plan uh, for whatever country or to do uh, whatever it is. Uh, or if they need to hire somebody, I'm there and I, I have a big network. I can help them to find that person. Uh, but I'm there to help. I'm not there to take time out of the business. So that's for me is key. So that's that's the big difference. And with that approach, we have already made 32 investments uh, in companies. Uh, geographically, uh, a lot of it is in Spain. We have invested already also in, in the U.S. in five companies in the U.S. But everything we do in the U.S. has come through directly through Fiji Labs. Uh, we have, as I say, we have a very good relation with them. They're amazing investors. Uh, um, uh, we have made some investment already in the U.S. with them, and they they have made investment in Europe with us. So they have made our uh, free investment with us in in Europe as well. So that's that's uh, that's a, a summary of what we're doing now. Well, that's fantastic, and I'm glad that uh, you're using that approach. And you know, I think that the VC world needs uh, more people like you guys that have the operational experience. So I guess, like uh, now, with that in mind, and you know, given your experience as as a founder. What patterns do you typically recognize in those founders that, that you think have potential? Well, it's a very good question. So when you are first, when you are not a first time entrepreneur, from the first one, you always learn. So that's always something very nice to have, but it's not, of course, not, not always possible. Uh, it's, uh, first is to be a personal connection always with the person that you are in the other side with, because you're gonna, you're gonna be there to help and he need to be, Good engagement. I think that's, that's very important. Uh, and, and then what we look at more is the business model in terms of how, how it's growing. We like to put the money to grow the business. Uh, we like to, to be, we prefer business that are extremely capital efficient, that, uh, actually the money is there to grow the business, but if we cut marketing, the company will still be growing instead of 100, 200, 300%. It will grow at 20, 30% at a healthy rate. Right? So we want, we like to invest in companies. That can be profitable if needed, although they, they might, they cannot, they, they probably are not profitable at this point because they're growing very fast, but they can be profitable if needed. So that's what I understand. And what we like less or we don't understand that much is 
companies with zero revenue and not expectation of having revenue in the in the future. Uh, so there is a lot. We will, for example, I always say we have missed Facebook and probably will not have invested in the first PPT of ticket because there was just a PPT. There was nothing there. So we'll probably not be always in certain set of some occasion will not be normally the first per check, uh, but happy to be the second check and, and, uh, follow up on the companies with, uh, those requisites. And although we make exception, as I say, if there is something very unique that we see, in a company that with zero revenue, uh, uh, we are we are happy to we are happy to invest there. So it's not a fixed rule, but it's more like guidance. Perfect. So I guess now now looking back with with all these experiences, with the ups and downs, with uh, being put to the emotional limits, uh, what piece of advice would you give your younger self about fundraising and also about getting your company acquired? The about piece of advice about getting my company acquired. Um, so, so, yeah, so for example, if you had to do it all over again, what piece of advice would you give to your younger self? Well, first of all, uh, I will go for, I, I would, I will not change too much in the sense of how we did the, the way we did things, but probably at the end of the process, I was simplified as much the structure. It was very painful the ninth month of due diligence and to, to look for the closing. So probably even I would have get a, a, a bank. Because at the end of the day, with those old, as the process was delayed for by so much, when we sold the company, actually, we were pretty much one month out of running out of cash. We didn't consume, we were pretty much in break-even, but we haven't raised money for a year and a half. And with the last round was 4 million euros, so we didn't have money. Uh, and uh, so probably we were in a situation that should, could have been avoided with a faster process. So even if we have the experience of investment bankers, probably I would have go for a, for, an, for a bank or a professional advice that we have done most of the heavy work and will allow us to keep on the business and keep growing the business and having alternatives in case the transaction didn't go through. So that's probably one of the things that will change. That's fantastic. So, so I guess for, for people that are listening, Ander, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hello? Oh, well, yes. Uh, so they can, whoever's want, I'm, I'm in LinkedIn. It's uh, Ander Michelena. Uh, so I don't think there is too many of us. So living in Madrid, so that was an easy one. And if not, at, uh, you can send me an email at under.michelena at allyron.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Ander. It's been a pleasure to have you on the Dealmaker Show. All right. Thank you, Alejandro. Take care. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.